G'day and welcome to another episode of uh, This Marketing Thing. Uh, today we're going to take a uh, deep dive into the third section of the Influence book, uh, Commitment and Consistency. Hope you guys enjoy it. It's uh, really interesting stuff. See you on the other side. My name's Kyle Macker and I've been a pilot in the aviation industry for half my life. So you might be asking, why am I doing a marketing podcast, right? Well, I'm passionate about aviation and flying a big jet. It's just awesome. There's nothing like it. However, I realized that being a pilot is nothing what it used to be, like all jobs. And if I wanted to live the life of my dreams on my terms, I was going to have to teach myself a new skill. So three years ago, I started my marketing journey. I dove deep into the marketing world. I dug into the books, psychology, persuasion, anything that would help with the person saying yes to a product or service. I love it. However, I have a big problem. It's all theoretical knowledge. I have no hands-on experience and I still have so many questions. The biggest thing that I know is if we want our businesses to stand out in a noisy marketplace, we have to become better marketers. The best marketer will always win. So follow me on my journey and hopefully along the way it can help you spark up a few ideas that I've learned so you, that you can implement in your business. So make sure you subscribe to my channel so you don't miss the latest episodes and also if there's anything you want to know about, get in touch with me on Instagram at this marketing thing. So let's dive right in. G'day everybody and uh, welcome back. So today we're going to have a look at the uh, third chapter of influence, commitment and consistency. Now it's a, it's a pretty powerful psychological factor or weapon of influence and you can see it actually in a lot of places in society. One of them is at the racetrack and he, the start of the chapter he talks about this is two Canadian psychologists found that people were a lot more confident their horse was going to win 30 seconds after placing the bet than 30 seconds before placing the bet. And the reason that is is because once we've taken a stand, we encounter external and internal pressures to behave consistently with the commitment that we took. I guess you see this in taking, um, uh, you know, buying stocks or buying a thing at the grocery shop that you don't really need but you thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll just get it and then, you know, like, yeah, you're happy you made that decision. So, you you, you know, you're consistent with your uh, the commitment that you took to buy the or make the purchase. You might be asking why. Now, in our society, human culture, it's seen as, you know, being inconsistent is seen as an undesirable human trait. Like, so if you're a very wishy-washy person or you say one thing and do another you know, or, you know, like it can be even seen as like sort of mentally ill, right? Whereas if, you, if you're a consistent person, you're, you know, it's seen as being very desirable, you know, like it's seen as intelligent, a high degree of personal strength, you're trustworthy. So it's very valued in our, in our culture. You know, I, I had a friend growing up and you know, it was, you know, he, he would say one thing then do another. Like, I mean, if we were going out for a night out or going out somewhere, if he got a better offer in that time, he would just go off and do that. And it was like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, he, 
you know, is there something wrong with him, like mentally? And that was the first thing we thought of as a group of mates. Like, what is going on with this guy? Like, you can't just, that's, you know, and eventually it was like, mm, he's not consistent. So, you know, we'll, you know, we didn't see that as a very desirable personal trait. Now, in we need we definitely need consistency in our lives because without it our lives would be erratic and disjointed. And like with all these psychological factors, it's it almost acts like a shortcut for the brain. So that you know you can make a decision and you can stick to that decision without having to then analyze all this information, extra new information coming in, you can just go, no, that's the stand I take. And that's the way I'm going to go. You know, if especially in today, right, like, I mean, we've got, you know, there's, there's so much information being thrown at us. So if if we can just take that shortcut, this is the stand I took, I've bought this product or I've taken this stand, I don't have to think about it anymore, I can just move forward without having to analyse the rest of it. There's a really cool story in the book and he sort of goes into it It's about toy shops and how they had really low sales in January and February and what they wanted to do was increase the sales in those those months. So what they did, it was genius really, but they they used consistency to persuade parents to go in and purchase toys in January and February. Now, how they did this is what they would do is they would basically advertise on Saturday morning when kids are watching telly and it was a really cool toy and kids would go, I want that present for Christmas. And enough badgering, obviously, yep, you can have that toy for Christmas. So the commitment was made to their child. They would then go into the shop and it would be sold out. So what the toy shops would do, they would undersupply this toy that they'd advertised and then parents were forced to buy other types of toys for Christmas so that at least they had something to open on Christmas Day. And then what they would do after Christmas is they would now have enough supply at those toy shops and what they would do same advertisements on Saturday morning, and the kids would go, Mum, Dad, that's the toy you promised me. Like, you know, so the parents, being consistent, would have to go down to the toy shop to get this, to get this toy that they promised their child. Genius on the toy shop's part, probably not for the parents because they got a double whammy on having to buy toys. But it shows you how powerful consistency is. But what's important is that it started with the commitment. Now, scientists think they've found the answer to why consistency can be so powerful. And they believe it's due to the commitment that was made. Because if you can get someone to take a stand or go on record, then you've set the stage for automatic consistency. Now, In the Korean War, there was two types of POW camps. There was Chinese POW camps and Korean POW camps. And Allied soldiers would go to one or the other. 
Now, Korean POW camps were quite brutal and harsh. Um, they all went for the physical, the Koreans went for the physical approach of the Allied soldiers, whereas the Chinese went for a lenient approach. However, it was really more a psychological bombardment. It was so successful that after the war, all the soldiers in Chinese POW camps were, you know, were asked by psychologists after the, back in America or wherever they, Allied soldiers had come from, why did this work, how did this work so well? And they asked them a lot of questions because all the attempts to escape um, were foiled. People would rat on each other. They would almost seem in their letters to their family as if they sympathised with the Chinese communists. Completely different to where they'd gone. And, and, and what they did is that they started small. So where the soldiers were trained to give name, rank and serial number, they might just ask a little question, what's wrong with America? And, you know, if that person answered, he would, that would be a small commitment, a small opening, you know, even a comment like the United States is not perfect or, you know, there's no unemployment in a communist country. Anything like that makes a small commitment that can be later turned into, you know, before you know it, they're writing lines uh, that are anti-American and pro-communist. Then next they're writing essays and they're signing their names to it. Or So it, it's, it's like that old Confucius saying, if you want to move a mountain, the man who wants to move a mountain starts with small stones. And that's what the Chinese were doing. Now, if you've ever been, we, we see this in modern day as well with our sales funnels. Have you ever gone to click on something on Facebook and then it takes you to a landing page where you put your email address in and then you'll get emails from that person and you might keep getting emails and emails and emails and then you read one one day and you go, oh, that, that product can really help me. Then you buy a product. It might be a $37 product and then, you know, a couple of months later, you're indoctrinated into their, you know, their way of thinking, their products, and you you might buy a more expensive product. It's exactly the same technique. It's the foot in the door technique. Now, Jonathan Friedman and Scott Fraser did an experiment in the mid 1960s, and basically, what they did is they approached a group of homeowners and asked them if they could place this massive drive safely billboard in their front yard. And as you can imagine, 83% of them said no, no way, which is obviously understandable. Now, what was interesting, the second, the second group that they approached, 76% of them said yes. Now, the difference with this group is two weeks earlier, a different person had gone to the homeowners and asked them to place a small three-inch by three-inch uh, plaque in their front yard, same sign, drive safely. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, actually, because 
What they then did is they approached another group of homeowners and asked for the same billboard, but two weeks earlier, they asked those homeowners to sign a petition of basically keeping the state beautiful. And that's like one of those things that no one's going to say no to, right? But when they asked for the huge big billboard two weeks later, it wasn't as high as the 76% of the small three-inch by three-inch driver safety sign, but it was half of the people that they asked said yes to this massive billboard. Now, the two psychologists were a little bit confused or a little bit perplexed why this was happening. Like, what had signing a a beautification petition had anything to do with driver safety? And what they kept coming back to was that they they believed that signing the beautification position changed people's uh self-image, the way they viewed themselves. They saw themselves as public spirited citizens that got involved in the community and they changed the way they look at themselves. So if, if, you know, they were going to say yes to these types of things because that's the new person they were. Now, once an active commitment is made, then self-image is squeezed from both sides. There's an internal pressure and an external pressure. And internally, there's a pressure to bring self-image in line with the action that you took. And externally, there's a tendency to adjust the way or your image in accordance with the way that others perceive you. So there's three types of commitments. The first one is a public statement. Now, written statements are a really good example of this. That's why you see some companies or weight loss programs, they want you to write your weight loss goals and show them to as many family and friends as you can. And what that does is it's you've made a public commitment and you're more likely to be consistent with your uh, food and health choices because you've made it in public. Uh, you know, we're going to see uh, more in the future doing uh, public commitments on Instagram stories and Facebook lives and that sort of thing. Um, another good example is hung juries. What they find is if they do in the jury room, if they vote on a verdict by sticking up your hand, making that public commitment that you, whether he's guilty or whether a person's guilty or not guilty that person is less likely to change their verdict because they've made that commitment and they want to be seen as being consistent with their choices, so they're less likely to change. So they reckon now secret ballots are the way to go because there's more likely to be hung juries if if it's a public vote. Now, the second commitment he talks about in the book is a commitment that requires effort. Now, the more effort a commitment takes, the greater the, you know, the influence of consistency will be. Now, in the book, he gives examples of like uh, when a, in, in uh, you know, these tribes where a boy becomes a man and he goes out on these 
you know, through this week of beatings and taken out into the bush and just has to survive by himself. And a little bit closer to home is like uh, hell week for like trying to get into uh, sorority groups or fraternities and, you know, where they have to do all these, you know, these tasks of, you know, like beatings or really, you know, awful challenges that they have to do. Because a person who goes through a, a great deal of pain or struggle tend to value the it a lot more highly than someone who attains it the same thing very easily. Now, the last commitment type is the inner choice. Now, this is the most powerful one. Social scientists have found that if we accept inner responsibility for our behaviour without external pressures influencing our behaviour, then the, there'll be a strong level of consistency with that commitment we made. Now, external pressures are like a threat or reward. It's like in the POW camp, camps in Korea. The prisoners that wrote those essays that were pro-communist were only given a small reward it was only a couple of bits of fruit or a couple of cigarettes. And the reason that they did that was because so the prisoner would own their, would haven't made the inner choice of their behaviour. Yeah, another example in the book that he talks about is an experiment that Friedman does on nine, ten-year-old boys to keep them away from a toy. The first time he does it, he threatens them that they'll be punished. And then six weeks later, the boys without him there, they they want to play with the toy. But then the next time he does it, he doesn't threaten them. He makes them make the inner choice. And then six weeks later, the boys don't touch that because they had made that decision themselves. They've made the inner choice. A really good experiment that was conducted by a Dr. Michael Palak in Iowa during winter and what residences would do is they would heat their homes with natural gas. So what he did is he had interviewers impersonate as the gas company to go around to people's homes and offer them uh, money-saving and fuel-saving advice on how to reduce their energy bills. And these residences were really happy for the information and they promised that they would save energy. Now, what they found a month after they'd, they'd been, uh, the interviewer had been round to their homes, there was no real saving. There was, there was nothing had changed in comparison to other people's homes that hadn't had the advice at all. So what they did is then they tried another group of home owners and this time they offered the same advice, but then they offered them something else. They offered them that they would be named in the local newspaper as, you know, fuel-saving citizens and their names would be included in the newspaper. Now, what was really interesting here is that a month later, the residents had saved 12.2% on their natural gas. 
Now that was that was what was you know that that got them saving that twelve point two percent. What they did next is really interesting. They took the rug out from under them, so they took away the being named in the newspaper. Now, what they thought might happen is that people would slip back into their old ways, but actually the opposite happened. By the end of winter, every homeowner that was promised that uh, place in the newspaper was now saving 15.5% per month on their natural gas. And they they believe the reason for this is because this, you know, say the conservation of natural gas had had grown its own support. So, you know, there was... uh, you know, new self-image formed, you know, need for reduce of foreign oil dependency, lowered energy bill, you know, it, it, it pride in a new self-esteem. And when the publicity leg had been knocked out, the conservation argument had been supported by these other legs. Now, this technique is called lowballing. Another great example of lowballing is what car salesmen do. So if you're looking for a new car, he might offer you $1,000 to $1,500 off the price of the car. Now, the salesman is never going to honour that price, but what it does get out of you is a yes to buy the car. It's a commitment that you take. Now, what he might do is... You know, there might be extensive forms to fill out or, you know, contracts to be signed. But what he might do as well, he might say, look, why don't you take the car home overnight and then you show your friends and family the new car and you start to develop other reasons why you should purchase the car, that the decision to purchase grows its own legs in your mind. Now then somewhere along the line there'll be a problem and I've spoken to my manager and the price of the car's too low and you know we'd be losing money but you sort of think well it's a thousand dollars on a multi-thousand dollar deal so it's not that bad and you've developed these other psychological reasons why you should buy the car and the car salesman reinforces that this car's the right choice for you And so you buy the car. Now, what the other the other thing that they might do as well is that what they might do is inflate the price of your trade in by a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars. Then finding out there's a problem and it's way above blue book value, they reduce the you have they reduce the price of your trade in multi thousand dollar deal. You buy the car, right? Now, this doesn't work on everybody, but it works on enough that car salesmen use it. So that's all I've got for this episode on commitment and consistency. I guess the key takeaways are in your business, if you can get someone to take a small commitment, even if it's just an email address or a small yes, or ask them to engage in some way Uh, to take a survey or something even just ever so small, you can then sort of doctrinate them into 
your way of thinking, your beliefs, and then um, you can definitely build rapport with that customer. And then so long you can, uh, you know, make some sales towards that person. But anyway, look, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. It's come up on 23 minutes now. That's probably a bit longer than I'd uh, wanted for these trainings. But uh, nonetheless, look, we've got we've made a Facebook group. Um, this marketing thing. So if you want to get in touch with me, I want that group to be all about marketing and and um, tips and hints on uh, what you can use on for your marketing on your business. So get in touch with us on that if you'd like to hear anything, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Bye. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to subscribe and if you want to get a hold of us, we're on Facebook. We've actually made a group and the group name is This Marketing Thing. Catch you next time.